Good morning, I'm Clark Irvin, as, as you probably know. Um, this is the second in our three-part series on the presidency of Jimmy Carter, the nation's 39th president. Last week we heard from Meredith Evans, the head of the Carter Library, and she gave us some very lovely and enchanting anecdotes about what life is like for the Carters now. Um, and today we hear from a Carter scholar about the presidency uh, uh, substantively. And that scholar is Professor Robert Bob Strong. He is the William Lynn Wilson Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University. He earned a bachelor's degree from Kenyon College, a master's degree from Northern Illinois University, and a PhD from the University of Virginia. He's taught on the following subjects, the presidency, of course, national security issues, and American foreign policy at Washington and Lee since 1989. And over his many years there, he's also held a number of administrative positions, including that of interim provost. We were just talking about the fact that he was a Fulbright Scholar at University College Dublin during the 2013-2014 academic year, and he's also been a visiting scholar at Oxford. He's a widely published author of both articles and books. In fact, he told me just now that he's working on a new book on President George H.W. Bush, and among his books is a book that he wrote in 2000 titled Working in the World, Jimmy Carter and the Making of American Foreign Policy. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor Bob Strong. Bob, thank you very much uh, for this uh, invitation and opportunity. Peter Bourne, who was Jimmy Carter's friend and biographer, begins his book with an odd observation. Jimmy Carter was the first American president born in a hospital. <laughs> the year was 1924, the very same year that George Herbert Walker Bush was born, and a time when most women gave birth at home. Miss Lillian had a profession, a profession she was proud of. She was a nurse, and though there were no problems with the pregnancy, she wanted to set an example for her neighbors by having her child in the modern way. We don't normally think of the Carter family as being modern and progressive. <laughs> uh, they lived in a small town in rural Georgia. And though Plains will be forever the community connected to the Carters, uh, that was not Jimmy's childhood home. He was actually raised in a community smaller than Plains which is kind of hard to imagine. Uh, it was a community called Archery, a few miles to the west. The Carter home had no electricity and no indoor plumbing. Uh, it has been uh, restored and is now a modest tourist attraction in southwest Georgia. I'm told that all the children who visit ask questions endlessly about the outhouse in the backyard. <laughs> I want to tell some stories this morning about Carter's childhood and his years as a young adult in the segregated South. I want to tell those stories because I think they're important for understanding who Carter was and uh, how he thought about the opportunities he held once he became president of the United States. Carter took lessons from the civil rights movement with him to Washington. It's one of the reasons he emphasized human rights as an important element of his uh, presidency. Now, 
The story about race, like almost all stories about race, is a complicated one. And it's not always complimentary to Jimmy Carter. But it is, I hope, worthwhile. Worthwhile for people trying to understand him as a man and as a president, and maybe worthwhile for us trying to understand issues we encounter in our own lives. Jimmy's father, Mr. Earl, was a hard-working farmer and businessman. He hated debt, and when the Great Depression came, he didn't have any. Uh, that helped him recover quickly, and he became a prosperous uh, farmer and businessman in the slow national recovery. He was also a strict taskmaster, both for the workmen at his uh, farm and various business establishments, and for his children. He also practiced Christian charity. He helped neighbors when illness or death brought financial hardship. He bought shoes for children who would otherwise walk to school without them. When Miss Lillian did volunteer nursing for families who couldn't pay for her services, which was all the time, Mr. Earl supplied the medicines she needed. He tried to do his charity anonymously. He actually hired a retired school teacher in Plains to make the gifts that he wanted to make as long as she would ensure that no one knew uh, where the money was coming from. But Earl Carter was also a strict observer of the laws and norms in the Jim Crow South. When the African-American boxer Joe Lewis fought for the heavyweight championship of the world, Mr. Earl put his radio on the windowsill so that his black neighbors and workmen could stand outside and listen to the ringside announcer. Jimmy was a child and remembers what happened. When the fight was over and Lewis had won, the black neighbors thanked Mr. Earl politely, walked a considerable distance away from the house, and only then began to cheer. Had it been up to Jimmy's mother, they might have listened to the fight inside the Carter home. Miss Lillian was widely regarded in archery and later in plains as eccentric. She defied the unwritten rules of segregation on a regular basis. When she invited black guests to her home, they came in the front door, not the back. When she entertained them, they sat in the living room, not the kitchen. As a concession to her husband, she tended to do those kinds of invitations and visits only when he was not in the house. There were lots of other eccentricities. Rosalind Smith, who grew up in Plains and later married Jimmy Carter, remembers that when she was growing up, Miss Lillian was the strangest person she had ever met. She was the only person Rosalind ever heard say a good word about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Jimmy and Rosalind shared an ambition. They fell in love, but they both wanted to get out of planes. They both wanted to find a life in a wider world. They married shortly after Carter's graduation from the Naval Academy at the end of the Second World War and lived on or near naval bases in Virginia, Hawaii, California, uh, Connecticut, New York. Carter earned a coveted appointment to the nation's nuclear submarine force and rose rapidly in his military career. 
The wider world probably changed the young couple's attitudes toward race. When one of Carter's ships made a call to a Caribbean port and the local British naval officers invited the crew to a party, they put a caveat in the invitation. It was an invitation for white sailors only. Carter joined a protest and none of the crew members attended the event. Later when he visited the family farm, he told his father what he had done and what was happening out in the now integrated American military. Mr. Earl was not pleased. He told Jimmy that he had been rude to the British officers because there was absolutely nothing wrong with discrimination at social events. That was the last conversation father and son ever had on the subject of race. A few years later, Mr. Earl died suddenly from the onset of pancreatic cancer. When that occurred, Jimmy was surprised at the outpouring of affection for his father. His father was a fairly stoic, sometimes severe person, but the community knew about his charitable acts. Carter was mightily impressed by their reaction. He made a momentous decision. He resigned his naval commission and returned to Georgia to work the family land and manage the peanut warehouse. Rosalind was not pleased. In at least one account, the drive they took from New York to Georgia occurred without any conversation between husband and wife. Upon arrival, Carter found the family business in considerable distress. This was a result of his father's illness and the fact that Mr. Earl had forgiven debts he was owed uh, by nearly everyone in the community. For some time, the Carter Enterprises were on the brink of bankruptcy. Carter remembers it as a period of constant dread, living with the knowledge that one bad turn of events could bring everything to ruin. There was nothing he could do, except wait and hope that next season's crop would make a profit. Carter says, that the second time he had that feeling of helplessness was in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. Hard work and good fortune did lead to success for Carter. He became wealthy and a leading member of his hometown community. He was elected to the school board in the years after the Brown decision. He did not call for an end to segregated schools. No one on the school board did. But when his neighbors urged him to join the White Citizens Council and openly oppose integration, that Carter refused to do. Several of those neighbors came to visit him at the peanut warehouse and uh, put some dollars down on the counter and said, we've taken up a collection. We think you're like your father, fairly cheap. And maybe you're not joining the White Citizens Council because it's an active economy and we're going to pay your dues. Carter told them that if you leave your dollars on the counter, I will take them to the back office and flush them down the toilet. That was not the answer his neighbors wanted to hear. There was then a boycott of the Carter peanut warehouse. More problems arose when Carter supported a school board plan to consolidate the schools and plains with the ones in the surrounding county. Any change in local education was controversial in those days. Any change was seen 
is the first step toward integration. There were angry calls to the Carter home, epithets posted on the peanut warehouse door, and more lost customers. And the Carter family had other encounters with the forces of segregation. In the mid-1960s, interracial groups were traveling the Georgia countryside, attending church services, and by their presence, technically integrating those congregations. There was resistance. In Americas, a city south of Plains, a white minister was famously photographed standing in the doorway of his church with a rifle and a band of bullets across his robe. He was protecting the premises from unwelcome guests. Members of the Baptist Church in Plains worried that they might face the same problem, and they proposed a resolution. They would halt any services underway if and when any black persons entered the church. Carter was then a deacon of the congregation, but was out of town when that resolution was proposed. He was scheduled to be out of town again when it was voted on. His wife urged him to keep that commitment and sidestep the controversy, but he didn't. He changed his plans, and together, the family spoke out against the proposal and voted for its rejection. The Carters were the only no votes in the church meeting, except for the vote of an elderly gentleman known to be hard of hearing and believed to be totally unaware of what was going on. <laughs> This time, when the Carter family went home, they received fewer hostile phone calls. In fact, some neighbors called to say they knew the Carters were right, but they were afraid to stand up and say so. Progress was being made in Plains, even if it was slow, and even if it was sometimes hidden. Let me be clear and precise. In the 1960s, Jimmy Carter was not a public leader in the civil rights movement. There were demonstrations and protests in Americas he didn't attend. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech in Americas. Carter didn't hear it. In those years, Jimmy Carter did not use his influence over local schools to promote integration. He merely refused to join the active and aggressive resistance to it and balked at the plans to block blacks from attending church services. Those actions were enough to make him and his family the targets of harassment. We celebrate, and rightly so, the courage of civil rights activists who sat in at restaurant counters, marched in defiance of fire hoses and police dogs, got arrested or beaten for riding a bus, were killed for conducting a voter registration drive. The civil rights era had plenty of heroes and martyrs. But I think it's important for us to remember it also had moderate whites who made hard choices in their own social circles. Those moderates stood their ground on narrower issues and safer terrain than the demonstrators and the marchers. But they also took risk. They also paid a price. Jimmy Carter was one of those. All this time, the early 1960s, the mid-1960s, Carter had political ambitions. They went far beyond the local school board. In 1962, he ran for the state legislature 
and won his seat after suing the Democratic Party of Georgia over illegal voting that had taken place in the neighboring courthouse of Quitman County. Apparently, this is what the records show, the good citizens of Quitman showed up at the polls in alphabetical order. <laughs> they collected their ballots into bundles of 10, folded them neatly, and only then put them into the ballot box. It was a very orderly community. Or, as Carter's high-priced Atlanta lawyers proved, a corrupt courthouse. Carter's career in politics began in that odd and inauspicious way. He was never the regular guy working his way up in the power structure of the Georgia Democratic Party. He was the honest candidate who sued the party leaders, won, made a pledge to read every bill before he cast a vote, and always refused the free meals and drink offered by Atlanta lobbyists. He had some of Miss Lillian's penchant for eccentricity. In 1966, Carter considered making a run for the House of Representatives, but instead became a, gov a candidate for governor. He was a highly unlikely candidate. Little known outside of the farming communities in southeast Georgia, Carter was expected to go nowhere in a statewide contest with a crowded field. Instead, by hard work, extensive travel, aggressive use of family surrogates, and a moderate platform, he came in third and forced a runoff between a popular progressive and Lester Maddox. Maddox was, of course, the segregationist restaurant owner who blocked blacks from entering his establishment in the same fashion as the America's minister. Maddox stood in the doorway with an ax instead of a rifle and spent the rest of his life autographing ax handles. <laughs> Carter was despondent. He had lost a long shot race that he hoped to win and may have inadvertently made it easier for Maddox to secure the Democratic nomination and the governorship. Four years later, he was back, this time running against a liberal Atlanta lawyer and businessman who appeared to have every advantage. According to Carter's political advisor, Hamilton Jordan, winning the governorship in 1970 was harder than winning the presidency in 1976. That's hard to imagine, but that's what Jordan says. Carl Sanders, a popular former governor, was Carter's opponent, and according to Jordan, Sanders had all the political establishment, all the money, all the newspapers, all the political talent. It was just Jimmy Carter against everybody. Carter again campaigned as a moderate. On race-sensitive matters, he was particularly careful. He accepted endorsements from conservatives, including one who had been a former officer in the White Citizens Council. He said some positive things about private schools that were proliferating across the, straight, across the state, usually as a mechanism to circumvent or mitigate court-ordered integration. He promised to invite George Wallace to visit Georgia because Sanders, when he had been governor, had canceled an invitation to the controversial governor. People supporting the Carter campaign distributed pictures of Sanders in a locker room with African-American basketball players who had just won a playoff victory for an Atlanta team that Sanders partly owned. The picture showed Sanders to be someone who was evidently wealthy, well-connected, and able to socialize with celebrities. 
Those were things Carter talked about all the time. He referred to Sanders as Cuff Link Carl. <laughs> in Carter's campaign posters, he was always shown in overalls and always in a field. Of course, the locker room photograph did something else. It showed the former governor in the company of black athletes in a way that was seen by some as a subtle race-based attack on Sanders. Jimmy Carter did not run a racist campaign in 1970. Lester Maddox had done that four years before, and so did many people in the history of Georgia politics. Carter sought and received an endorsement from Martin Luther King Sr., who was then a prominent minister in Atlanta, and of course the father of the slain civil rights leader. Carter campaigned in African-American churches, where his knowledge of scripture impressed the congregations. But if Carter reached out to black voters and never endorsed segregation, he was also careful to position himself to the right of Sanders and present himself as a moderate on civil rights matters. He advertised his close ties to ordinary, rural, working class Georgians, and he won. Because of the tenor and tone of the 1970 campaign, it came as a big surprise when Carter said in his gubernatorial inauguration the following phrase, the time for racial discrimination is over. No poor, rural, weak, or black person should ever have to bear the additional burden of being deprived of the opportunity of an education, a job, or simple justice. That plainly worded public statement was the first of its kind spoken by a Southern governor. It put Carter on the cover of Time Magazine. Leroy Johnson, an African-American member of the Georgia State Senate, said he was thrilled by Carter's inaugural address, but he was also surprised. He said there were a lot of white voters in Georgia who didn't know that the president, future president, was going to make that statement when he was elected governor. Carter went on to appoint a large number of African Americans to prominent positions in the state and to deal with a variety of issues in Georgia, including budget reform and government reorganization. He remained a moderate on issues of expenditure and taxation, but became a progressive on racial justice. And that combination made him a potential candidate for national office. So, how should we judge Carter's political trajectory on issues related to race? I suppose we could criticize him, imagining that we would have done more and done it sooner had we been politicians in the segregated South. But I hope we'll be careful and not render that judgment too quickly or too easily. It's hard to fully know what politics was like in those times when fundamental elements of long-established social structures were being challenged. They were unjust social structures, but powerful nonetheless. We should, I think, be open to the possibility that those who relate to the cause of civil rights made their own contribution to its success. After all, Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson were elected in 1960 not as champions of change in race relations. They were mainstream Democrats with a hardline opposition to the Soviet Union and a cautious approach to civil rights. Their full-throated support for civil rights legislation came later, 
just before and just after Kennedy's assassination. They were pressured to take more progressive positions because of the Freedom Riders, because of the Birmingham demonstrations, because of the March on Washington. Kennedy and Johnson were pivotal political leaders in steps that took this country closer to racial justice, but they were not advocates of those steps at the outset of their political careers. Jimmy Carter's story is much the same, except the Southern governors came to their leadership in civil rights later than the leaders of the nation. In 1975, Jimmy Carter decided to run for the presidency. When he shared that decision with his family, Miss Lillian is reported to have said, President of what? <laughs> she, Miss Lillian was a real pistol. The, 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 the president's press office after he was elected president on inauguration day went to Miss Lillian and said, please don't talk to anybody. Every time you do, you make headlines. And she said, I know, I know, I know. It's, it's his day, I won't. Uh, of course, reporters gathered around her uh, at the inauguration ceremony, and they said, Miss Lillian, are you proud of your son? And she said, which one? <laughs> well, as a one-term Southern governor with almost no national name recognition, Carter was an unlikely candidate for the nation's highest office. But in the years after Watergate and the war in Vietnam, it helped that Carter was a politician from outside Washington. In Iowa and New Hampshire, where candidates actually meet prospective voters, Carter was extremely effective. He led in both of those contests and then went up against George Wallace in the Florida primary. His victory there made Carter a serious contender. And after a few more rounds of primaries and caucuses, the presumptive nominee. A moderate candidate who spoke with a Southern accent and was able to defeat the party's most notorious segregationist offered hope that the Democrats could win states on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, and with those victories, win the White House. That, of course, is what happened. The 1976 presidential campaign was unusual in many respects. There were serious mistakes made by Carter, who gave an odd interview to Playboy magazine, <laughs> and by Gerald Ford, who inadvertently liberated Poland in the presidential debates. <laughs> Both candidates were running national campaigns for the first time. Both were decent people, knocked about in the rough and tumble of presidential politics. In foreign affairs, it was hard for the Democratic Party in 1976 to criticize Republicans. After all, they had finally brought the fighting in Vietnam to an end, and they were busy pursuing detente with the Soviet Union, arms control, a new relationship with China, all of those things were popular with Democrats. Carter did criticize Nixon and Ford for neglect of human rights and support for dictatorial regimes in Chile and on the Indian subcontinent. Human rights was the ideal issue for Jimmy. It united a Democratic Party that included, at that time, both Cold War conservatives and anti-war liberals. It didn't surprise political analysts that Carter campaigned on that theme. It did surprise them when it turns out that he meant it. Human rights was the primary topic of Carter's first major foreign policy speech at Notre Dame and a subject he talked about in public and private throughout his presidency and beyond. Jimmy Carter saw a clear connection between what had happened in America during the civil rights era and what could happen across the globe 
if citizens and leaders talked about fundamental rights and justice. Carter had seen that longstanding and seemingly intractable conditions in American race relations could change and could change with relatively little violence. If it could happen in Georgia, it could happen elsewhere. Moreover, Carter had well-developed ideas about the best way to promote positive change. You needed to make clear and frequent statements about what was right, but you didn't need to impose harsher punitive penalties against the leaders you were hoping would introduce change. Jimmy Carter consistently spoke out against apartheid in South Africa, but his administration never imposed the strict sanctions on American firms doing business in South Africa that the liberal critics of apartheid wanted. Carter explained why in a speech he gave in Nigeria in 1978. There he said that progress on racial issues was more likely to be accomplished if the determination to see wrongs righted is matched by an understanding that the prisoners of injustice include the privileged as well as the powerless. I believe we should therefore combine our determination to support the rights of the oppressed people in South Africa with a willingness to hold out our hand to the white minority if they decide to transform their society. Human rights policy, according to Carter, was not meant to be a bludgeon for battering the unjust. Talking about human rights, taking serious steps to support them, was meant to be a beacon that provided hope to those who suffered and a realistic appeal to those who had the power to bring about change. Jimmy Carter could be patient and balanced in trying to promote change in South Africa. But in other places of the world, he was a risk taker. He took diplomatic risks in the Middle East in support of a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel when all the experts said that his invitations to Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin were likely to end in disaster. He took political risks to resolve long-standing disputes between the United States and the Republic of Panama when turning the canal and the canal zone over to the Panamanians was never popular with the American public. That's Jimmy Carter. Once you are in office, do what you think is right, and don't worry about the political costs. That Jimmy Carter lost his bid for a second term, but subsequently became a respected former president. The Jimmy Carter you know from his post-presidency, the man who is tenacious, charitable, hardworking, sometimes controversial, passionate about peace, and always ready to teach a Sunday school lesson. That's the same Jimmy Carter who was in the White House for four years, and the same Jimmy Carter who navigated the complexities of Southern social change in the era of civil rights. Jimmy Carter and Martin Luther King Jr are the only two Georgians to win the Nobel Peace Prize. They never met. In the years when Carter was a rising star in Georgia politics, King was the most famous person living in Atlanta. There's no picture of them together. Maybe they never spoke at the same event or attended the same ceremony. Or maybe Carter's political advisors did not want the moderate farmer to be seen with the celebrated civil rights leader. King died 
a little over two years before Carter made his famous declaration in his inaugural address that the era of discrimination in Georgia was over. None of us here today are likely to become president of the United States. Well, actually, in your congregation, there might be someone <laughs> who thinks they're going to become president, but most of us don't. Most of us don't. Even if you don't have that ambition, I hope we can recognize that the challenges of public life are complex. The fact that Carter had to first win high office in his home state before he could openly advocate an end to segregation should be something we can understand even if ultimately we are conflicted about some of his political decisions. The other stories, the ones about the Carter family, I think those hit closer to home. Even if you're not in politics, questions of social justice arise all the time. When they do, will we be like Miss Lillian and defy prevailing social practice that seems unfair or disrespectful to friends and neighbors? Will we be like Jimmy and put our business lives in jeopardy by resisting unjust community opinion? Will we be like the Carter family and speak out in our community organizations and in our churches and speak out for the simplest of things, things like the idea that everyone is welcome in the house of God? Carter's political courage was sometimes calculated, sometimes delayed. It can be hard to judge. The personal courage of the Carter family is easier to see, easier to admire, and hard to imitate. Thank you. Questions? Yes, sir. The question was about the president's management style and the very famous uh, speech he gives, the so-called Malay's speech, and the firing of members of his cabinet. Um, it's a that's a really interesting question. Uh, his management uh, style uh, was, as we all know, uh, very detail-oriented. Um, there are documents. Uh, in the uh, Carter Library that have in the margin uh, DP. Uh, I remember interviewing Hamilton Jordan, uh, who, uh, who had a staff member who came up to him and said, the president wrote in the margin DP, what does that mean? It means dangling participle. <laughs> Carter, Carter was this detailed-oriented person, right? Uh, now, uh, he was accused, therefore, of not being able to see the big picture, not being an effective uh, politician. There's some truth to that accusation. It was also the case, it was also the case, that whenever they unrolled a map of the Holy Land, he knew more than Menachem Begin, which was not easy. Uh, and uh, he uh, knew the names for places that Anwar Sadat used, the names uh, that uh, Menachem Begin used, and the names that the rest of the world used. Uh, his detailed uh, attention to matters 
uh, often helped him in his uh, success. Now, at, in the summer of uh, 1979, uh, uh, the country was having its second oil crisis as a result of uh, the revolution in Iran. People uh, couldn't buy gasoline or could only buy gasoline on odd or even days, depending on what the final uh, number on your license plate was. All you who got vanity license plates, too bad. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what day you could buy gasoline. Um, and uh, Carter was given an energy speech. Here are the new steps we're going to take. And it just looked lame to him. He did this really crazy thing. He said, I'm not going to give the speech. And I'm going to cancel everything on my calendar for a week. And I'm going to go up to Camp David and listen to criticism of who I am and how this administration is going. That was, again, another feature. He was open to uh, critics of his presidency. Um, and he got way more attention by keeping quiet. Um, the guy behind us, uh, fewer tweets would work, right? Fewer tweets would work. Uh, I often ask people, who gave more White House addresses, Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan? It's Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan knew talking less uh, made people pay more attention to what you would have to say. So Carter goes silent for a week. This parade of people comes up to tell him the administration's in big trouble. Uh, you're not listening. You're not, the, you're not the interesting guy you were back in 1976 that we had great hopes for. Uh, you need to straighten out your act. And he gave that famous speech. It's called the Malay speech. It doesn't have the word Malays in it. Um, but he tried to connect what was happening to his administration to broader things that were happening in American society. More and more Americans were losing faith in the future. More and more Americans thought their kids would be less well off than they were. Uh, and uh, the speech he gave was extremely successful for a day or two. Right? Uh, it, it, it got a big audience because everyone wanted to know what does this president who uh, has been sitting up at Camp David now think. It was a promise on his part, I'm going to do better. Uh, it had uh, the character of a kind of religious confession. I have sinned, and here are the things I've done wrong, uh, but now I see it, and now I'm going to improve. Uh, and uh, had he just left it at the speech, he might have had some success in the months that followed. But instead, uh, he asked everyone in the cabinet to resign, and he reshuffled who was there uh, and stepped all over the positive news that had come from his story. So um, the broader lesson there, again, I think, is that Carter had a very mixed record as a user of the bully pulpit as a uh, communicator with the American public. And the Malay speech shows some of the best and some of the worst uh, aspects of his limitations in that regard. Yes? Can you speak to us about the Iranian crisis and his handling of that? Yeah. Um, Carter believes that you should count the Iranian crisis as a success. No, hardly anyone else does, but <laughs> he does. 
he counts it as a success for the following reason. He said, I'm going to get our hostages out alive. He did. It took over a year. They suffered enormously. America's reputation suffered enormously. His national security advisor told him, don't do that. The hostages are not the most important thing. The status and reputation of the United States is. Uh, Brzezinski told Carter, you shouldn't meet with the hostage families uh, because uh, you may have to make a hard decision at some point that puts those hostages at even greater risk. Carter ignored that advice. No, I care about the families. He can still tell you most of their names. And uh, I was committed to getting the hostages back. Getting the hostages back was the one time Jimmy Carter sent military forces into harm's way. There's only one. It's the hostage rescue mission. It failed spectacularly, uh, but uh, that was the time he was willing to use American military power. In the final analysis, there was a respectable negotiation uh, that, again, took too long, uh, but did involve unfreezing some of Iranian uh, assets. We didn't give them money. We gave them back their own money uh, in exchange for release of the hostages that they held up until just after uh, Reagan uh, was inaugurated. So uh, Carter will tell you, uh, I tried my best. I did what I thought was right. I got the hostages out alive. Hamilton Jordan will tell you, or did tell you before he passed away, that was one of the reasons you lost the election. Um, Carter is not politically naive. He knows that. He knows that. Uh, and he knew, he knew doing the Panama Canal treaties was not a popular thing, and it wasn't the smart thing to do. Rosalind told him that. She always gave him good advice. Uh, she said, do Panama in, in your second term. It's just a loser. Uh, he said, I might not get a second term. Uh, I have to do this. It's the right thing to do. Um, politicians tell us all the time, I do the right thing, right? They tell us all the time. Uh, but they're uh, far more calculating uh, than uh, Carter was. But he wasn't naive. He knew when he was doing something unpopular, he fully knew how unpopular his stance on the Iranian hostage crisis was. And given our life today, would it have been better to go to war in the Middle East then? Is it a good idea for us to go to war in the Middle East today against Iran? Uh, or are we better off postponing or avoiding those conflicts if we possibly can? That was Carter's view. It's harder now to see or to claim that that was wholly wrong. Yes, sir. And, uh, and please, your question next. Yes. Uh, would you give us your opinion regarding the challenge by Ted Kennedy to President Carter's reelection? Uh, yeah, the question was Ted Kennedy's challenge uh, to Carter in 1980. Hamilton Jordan said there were three reasons we lost hostage crisis uh, bad economic numbers uh, and the Kennedy challenge. Um, and the Kennedy challenge was the one that upset him the most. Uh, it did uh, uh, distract the campaign when they were gearing up 
to uh, run for a second term. Uh, there was some division in the Democratic Party, when does that ever happen? Um, that uh, wasn't fully resolved at the convention when the two candidates came together but didn't greet each other in the cinematic way that was expected. So uh, the Kennedy challenge was uh, a serious one uh, and it did enormous harm to Carter's chances for re-election. His chances were already in trouble because there was an international crisis and because there were bad economic numbers. A president going for a second term with those marks uh, against him is already in trouble. The Kennedy challenge uh, made it nearly impossible for him to succeed. Yes, sir, in the back, and then. In his 1996 book, Bob Gates, who had directed the CIA, right. credited Jimmy Carter's human rights campaign with materially contributing to weakening the Soviet Union yeah. and helped lead to the collapse of you know, the end of the Cold War. What's your thoughts about that argument? I think that's exactly right. And Ronald Reagan ran with the human rights campaign, not around the world, but against the Soviet Union. Uh, and ramped it up. Um, Carter wouldn't have objected to uh, the notion that uh, the Soviet Union was evil. Uh, and he called them out for uh, the attacks they made on dissidents. He called them out uh, for uh, uh, the limitations they placed on Jewish migration. He called them out on uh, nearly everything. Uh, he did it in a more mild fashion than Reagan did, but they were on the same side as far as uh, human rights in the communist world. So uh, uh, they, neither of them would want a, a scholar to say they were closer together than we thought. Um, uh, they both uh, have animosities toward each other, but, um, but they actually were. Last question if it's quick. Yes. Okay, maybe you'll have a quick response to it. Uh, how would you compare the moral evolution and integrity of Jimmy Carter to the current occupant? <laughs> and uh, and you know, corollary question, is it, is it painful being a presidential scholar since 2016? It's interesting. Um, I, I do think, I do think uh, that we ought to pay careful attention to biography. We ought to pay careful attention to character. Uh, and uh, uh, vote for or against him. You cannot be mistaken about the character uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I think uh, everyone uh, will uh, have a moment. The Senate has already had theirs and we've seen the result. Everyone will have a moment where you get to choose integrity or Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm saddened uh, by uh, uh, the number of Republican uh, senators uh, who made the choices uh, that they did. And again, the kind of person you are is consequential. Uh, we haven't seen uh, the worst of the current White House. Uh, we haven't seen uh, the bottom of what the current president is capable of. Uh, I uh, 
I observe in some dread as to what that may turn out to be. Um, and on the flip side, Carter is the most religious president we've had. He, he is a decent human being. Uh, that by itself uh, wasn't enough uh, to win a second term. Thank you very much. Thank you.